Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Uh, running around with my hair on fire. Oh no! Why? <laughs> that, actually, not that would be that would be very disruptive to recording a podcast. <laughs> yeah. But speaking of disrupt, disrupting a podcast recording, uh, I am I am moving. I I am both uh, uh, currently I have a, an office separate from my house, and we are both moving where we live. And I will actually go back to, to go back to working at home, uh, but closer to to the kids' school. So it it is a little hectic here at uh, Chautauqua HQ. Oh wow! So. Did you actually manage to just use the term disruption the way you described how you were going to move? Uh, I was using the the more layman's disruptive term, not the, <laughs> not, the not, not high disruption, as it were. Uh, so the the reason has an, an impact on exponent is next week is going to be uh, a bit of a mess. In that, usually the way that this works, you can uh, peek behind the curtains. Is I write a weekly article, usually on Tuesday or Wednesday, and that's usually the basis for what we discuss the following week. So next week, my schedule is going to be a little disruptive because my office is moving on Tuesday. So I'm actually going to be rejiggering the posting schedule for Shatekery, which I will send out to. I'll send details to members, but we are going to actually record on Tuesday before I would have written any weekly article, which may or may not exist next week. Uh, daily mm-hmm. updates will, will certainly will still will still go out. So the, anyhow, the point is we will not have our usual topic of of what to write about, and because you have been a slacker and haven't been writing pieces lately. Mm, sorry, sorry. Do you want me to drop that? No, that's good. Okay. You give me shit. <laughs> I might leave that in there too. Uh, <laughs> So uh, we actually we're going to do something fun and interesting for next week. Uh, we are going to have a mailbag. You are going to be able to send in and ask us questions. We can't guarantee we will get to every question because we will keep it to about an hour. And I suspect we will have a fair number of questions. But I, especially if we get like group groupings that are generally mm. in a similar vein. We'll try to cover what we can. So if you can email a question to mailbag at exponent.fm. That's mailbag at exponent.fm. Or we have a feedback form on the website. You can use mm. that as well. Uh, I, I, You could try tweeting at us, but uh, I, I, I think, mm. yeah, this would be a little hard to keep track of. So yeah. mailbag at exponent.fm. We are going to answer questions next week. So we're not sure what we're going to talk about. Uh, it's going to be up to our listeners. And it'll be a bit of an experiment. Can't say we'll do it again. We definitely cannot promise we'll answer every question. But uh, feel free to, to try that out. Yeah, should be fun. So... Uh, it will still be released later in the week on the usual usual sort of Friday Friday schedule. But just wanted to give folks a heads up about that, and uh, wanted to thank WordPress.com for sponsoring Exponent. Whether you're building a personal blog, a business site, or both, creating your website on WordPress.com helps others find you, remember you, and connect with you. You don't need experience; they guide you through the process from start to finish and take care of the technical side to get your site up and running. And listen to this one carefully, James. Their customer support team is made up of WordPress experts eager to help you get the most from your site, and they're available twenty four seven. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, yes, I unilaterally, I unilaterally changed it. Uh, plans start at just $4 a month, and all plans include a custom domain name for the life of the plan. Go to WordPress.com slash exponent to get 15% off your website today. That's WordPress.com slash exponent. So our thanks to WordPress.com for sponsoring Exponent. If you, uh, if you want to email questions about how to set up a website, we will probably just direct you to that link. <laughs> <laughs> but other questions, mailbag at exponent.com. Yeah. Sorry. Mailbag at exponent.fm. And yes. remember the FM, it's not .com. And, uh, and yeah, it, it, it will be fun. And they will get back to you quickly, even if it's on the weekend. 24-7, 24-7 support. That's, That's right. right. Speaking of things that are very popular, wrote about Amazon again this week. And so the context was Amazon Go, the new convenience store where you basically, there there's no cashier. You walk in, you grab what you want, and you 
and you walk out. And <laughs> it's kind of funny. There's this tweet that's posted about there's a huge line to go into a store where the whole point of it is that you don't have to stand in line. <laughs> that's good. I like that. It was it was good. Uh, the, that tweet's embedded at the, at the top of the article. Uh, but the but yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a fascinating concept in and of itself. I think it's even more fascinating to kind of consider. You know, I kind of use it as a framework. One to talk about. It's always a useful reminder to get back in sort of the economics of tech. Of tech. I mean, mm. this is a lot of what I wrote about at the very beginning of Stratechery, and it was kind of like going back to the roots a little bit to write this article to get into fixed cost, marginal cost, mm. the difference between those. But I'm glad to do it because. Uh, so like that's the foundational to so much of the stuff that we talk about. If you don't understand the economics of how these companies work, it's very difficult to to talk about the follow on things that they do. I mean, think about last last year we talked a lot about, you know, YouTube and advertising and Facebook and all these sorts of things. If you don't understand the foundational economics as to why they do what they do, then it's hard to it's hard to come up with a critique that actually resonates and makes sense and it's even more impossible to come up with solutions about how to move forward yeah and what's so interesting about this is it seems like amazon is moving in a direction that is completely opposite to the way that a typical silicon valley uh company would would operate in the same circumstances which well or at least that's your prediction and uh as as will be revealed i agree with you you certainly made a believer of me well, let's start, though, with the parts of Amazon that are the same as any other tech company. Mm. And, and that really gets into understanding the different sorts of costs that go into a business. So the, the most obvious one is marginal cost. We talk about marginal costs all the time, but this is, you know, if you're making a widget, it's like the cost of the materials that go into the widget and and, and the cost of labor that goes mm-hmm. into creating one more widget. Or yes. if it's fully automated, the cost of electricity, whatever it might be. Basically, the idea of a marginal cost is that to produce one more unit accrues some amount of cost. And that amount of cost that it, it, that is required to make one more is the marginal cost. And historically, but uh, even before the internet, it generally is the case that as you produce more units, the cost of the marginal cost of producing one more unit goes down. And that's the very notion of scale. You, you have some amount of fixed costs, but as you produce more and more units, it becomes more and more efficient overall to keep producing them. And so the marginal cost of the next unit you produce goes down. Yeah. That's, that's a great point. What's interesting about scale though is scale works in two ways. And again, we're, let's, let's make clear we're staying in like the old world here, like mm-hmm. producing widgets. Okay. And, and there's actually two, there's two types of scale that are important to understand. So the first type of scale is the one you're referring to, which is kind of like economies of scale, mm-hmm. where if you make more of a thing, you get better at making it, you use your your raw materials more efficiently, the people building it get better at it, so they waste less time, there's less mm-hmm. waste, all these sorts of things. And that's sort of like traditional economies of scale, or if you make more of something, generally the marginal cost, that, that is the cost of the materials and labor to produce one more, it goes down over time. So that that's, that's scale number one. But there's a second type of scale, which is more financial scale, which is leverage. And and this is if you're setting up a factory, for example, you have to pay to set the factory. You have to buy the land. You have to build the building. You have to buy the machines that are in the building, whatever it might be. And that is those are fixed costs. Now, the the way these these interact with with scale is first off, a fixed cost is paid regardless. Mm-hmm. So in, in a vacuum, producing one extra item 
doesn't increase your fixed costs at all. You've already paid out the fixed cost. And so this is why you can have companies that are money losing companies as a whole yet are still producing products because the marginal cost for just one more product is is positive even though their fixed costs are so huge they're losing money. So this is why for example like like oil companies for example or 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 steel the steel industry was was stuck in this for ages where they kept producing stuff because to produce one more item was profitable even though as a whole they were unprofitable because their fixed costs the, the overhang of those costs was so huge. And so the, the, the where scale comes in there, though, is when, you, when you're calculating the profitability of an item, you, you can't include just marginal costs. The mm-hmm. marginal cost and marginal profit is, goes into decision-making about mm-hmm. should we yes. produce one more item. But when you're doing accounting, actually figuring out what is the margin on this product, you have to incorporate the fixed cost because those – you have to build the factory at some point if you want to sell a widget, right? And yeah. so and so this is where financial leverage comes in. Where And so Apple, for example, I think it's a great example because they always talk about in their earnings call. They always talk about in the first quarter, and Apple's going to report their earnings next week, I believe. They'll talk about, oh, this quarter we had great leverage. Why do they have great leverage? Because they produce so many iPhones. They produce the most iPhones of the entire year in their fiscal first quarter, which is the the fourth quarter of the calendar year. And, and what that means is the costs that they spend on the factory Factories and the machines and all that sort of stuff. They basically you spread that out over every item that is produced in the factory, and it follows. If you produce 500 items, then you're dividing those fixed costs by 500, and the amount of fixed cost that's attributable to a single item is lower than if you only produce 400 items. The the cash flow, the expenditure is still the same, but your reported margin will change depending on how many you produce based on how much leverage you get from your fixed costs. Yeah. So the total cost equals the. Fixed- Fixed cost, which is the factory, plus the marginal cost, which is the cost, the sum of all the costs to produce each item. And the marginal cost is this is the cost to produce the last item that you produce or the one that you're thinking about producing next. Now, obviously, what's super interesting to both of us about the internet is it takes so many of the things that used to live in marginal cost world and moves them into fixed cost world. Right. And and even before the internet, just software in general. The mm. the whole concept of software and is that you spend a huge amount of, of time and effort developing the software. And all that time and effort is spent before a single mm. dime of revenue is earned. However, whatever your business model is, whether it's advertising or selling box software or licensing or or, mm. or whatever it might be. And all that is it's all upfront. The fixed cost of software is huge, but because software is digital, it's bits on a disk, it can be replicated endlessly, which means the marginal cost is zero. And so what it follows, and this this is what guides every aspect of technology, what follows is that it is in the interest of the software maker to spread out mm. and to distribute that software as far and wide as they can because every single additional item – is pure profit because there are zero marginal costs when it comes to producing a single additional piece of software because you're just duplicating bits on a disk. Right. And so your distinction between software and the internet is really well made. And so software moved a whole bunch of marginal costs into fixed costs, but then the internet made it even more so. So even software, for example, you describe box software that still needed to be distributed through old world channels. Like you'd go to your game shop and buy a PlayStation game or whatever. The internet has even shifted that into the fixed costs. Like the marginal cost to distribute 
contribute one more piece of software now is effectively zero. So it's had an even greater effect in terms of picking up these marginal costs and moving them into fixed costs. And that has only exaggerated this, this desire for companies that are producing software or selling software over the internet to sell it to even more and more people because of, of like you spend you sell more copies, you spread out more of that fixed cost, and the marginal cost is is converging on almost zero. That's exactly right. And so this and this is really the key to understanding the economics of like Microsoft back in the day or 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 Google and Facebook now. I mean, they spend a huge amount of money, but all that money is is under the line, mm. as it were, in that it's all in R and D, which is which is further down the balance sheet, which is along with like you know, administrative costs and all those sorts of things, like the, in the, just the day-to-day cost of running a business, and R&D goes down there. And at the top, they're like, oh, we're selling this thing, and our cost of goods sold, in the case of Google, like cost of goods sold is like the ad sales teams, for, exa- <laughs> for example, it, which is directly involved in ads. And not yeah. even, in some aspect of that is below the line as, all, as well. But Or like Microsoft, to go back to the box software days, their cost of goods sold would have been like the actual CDs and the discs mm. and the packages that go in them and, and those sorts of things. And and the, the point of it is that the the fix it's almost entirely a fixed cost endeavor and once it's out there it's it's free to distribute free to go out and and so once you've made that investment there's when you you have zero marginal cost you have incredible flexibility in your business you know the most important being that you can sort of spread it far and wide without any sort of financial penalty indeed your financial incentive is to spread it farther because the only part the only cost left is that fixed cost and the more you can spread that over more and more people and spread that thinner and thinner the the greater your sort of per unit income might be that unit might be an advertiser might be an ad might be a, a you know an installation of windows whatever it might be yeah and i mean it also has an effect on competition because you know once someone produces something and puts it out there that they've incurred the fixed costs and they will take whatever marginal revenue they can and they are incented to keep competitors out. So on one hand, competitors look in or potential competitors look in and think, well, I have to spend all that fixed cost, but they see someone else who's already there and that 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 company that's already there, if it sees somebody else coming in, it doesn't want them there. So its incentive is to could well be to drop the price because, and they can drop it very low because as you said, the marginal revenue and marginal cost cost is the basis of decision making. They will drop the price in order to scare competitors away. And if a competitor comes in, it's not unusual to see a price war break out because both of them have already incurred the fixed costs and the marginal cost is zero. That's exactly right. And you see this in the real world as well. And this is the concept of natural monopolies, mm. where you have something like a telecom network or, or, a, ca- or a cable network, which, which was, you know, we certainly talked about, where to actually build out all the infrastructure, to build out the lines, to build out all, all the networking, all those sorts of things is very, very expensive. But once it's built to plug another house in or to provide service, the marginal cost is very, very close to zero. And so if a competitor comes in and they have to spend – hundreds of millions or billions of dollars to build out a, a another network, then the incumbent can just lower the cost of service to zero for all intents and purposes, mm. making it almost impossible for the incumbent to make any sort or the the challenger to make any sort of money. And then once they give up, then they go out and they can jack up the prices again. Mm. And it's because and it's the, but it's the same concept where the the reason why these companies like Comcast or AT&T or whatever have the the power that they do is due to incredible upfront fixed costs. In this case, it it's even more like they're almost more challenging because they're like physical goods, right? I mean, there's an aspect where when you're software, yes, you have to pay 
pay the engineers to to to, to build this stuff, but you're just like <laughs> it's almost easier to stomach than to actually go out and like buy telephone poles mm. and dig ditches. So like once you get into the physical world, the the level of difficulty and challenge just you know goes through the roof. And so on on net, I would say that this shift towards the internet has been a, a, a benefit for society. So you think about, uh, I mean, servers is the is the example, and server rooms is the example that we've often talked about on the podcast. And you think about the amount of scale you used to have as an organization to be able to build a server room in the first instance, and that limited the number of organizations that could then build applications on top of those because they had to have been a certain size in the first instance to build a server room. But Amazon, as an example, and other companies as well recognize that actually we could more efficiently provide uh, servers as a service. And so rather than every organization needing to invest this fixed cost, Amazon made this massive fixed cost investment, built up AWS with all these servers, and now offers it out piece by piece as a, as a variable or a marginal cost to all the startups who want to use service space now. What's interesting about that is it kind of gets both both aspects of how you can achieve, how you can leverage this zero marginal cost idea. Mm. So the first one is software. Like th- there is a huge amount of software that is necessary to run something like AWS to distribute, you know, to whether the features itself, the administrative, to have it distributed all over the world and all, all the various, all the various regions and things like that uh, and availability zones. And all that had to like money had to be spent to build mm-hmm. that but all that money that was spent was a fixed cost once it's spent it's spent and once it's done it's done and you can reuse it in every data center around mm-hmm. the world so that's number one they have the natural sort of software you know software fixed cost zero marginal cost advantage but there's also an advantage that comes from actually building data centers right you like you have to go out and get the land you have to build the building you have to acquire all the all the hardware that goes into it you have to do the cooling you have to do the administrative staff all those are also fixed costs but unlike software they're like real world fixed costs like like more akin to you know a factory in some regards or 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 the the telecom companies and what what you end up having is a situation where amazon's kind of double dipping on this advantage if that makes sense where they they have the physical infrastructure that provides one barrier they have the software infrastructure that provides another barrier, and then they're layering on top, you know, this sort of network effects that they gain from the more people on AWS, the more like there's lots of payouts that come out. What is just the more people, the more those costs are leveraged, which means lower prices for everyone. Mm-hmm. Number one. Number two is Amazon, because Amazon's customer base is so much larger, you see AWS just plowing ahead, releasing all these different sort of features. And, and yes, AWS, I've, t- I've talked about in the daily update, is much more of a marketing driven organization than I think some of its competitors in that people want something, they will build it. it like it maybe the UI might be a little funky, might be a little weird, but they have all these sort of niche cloud things that that none of the other ones have and they're they're always making more like every year at AWS reinvent they're just uh, unveiling (laughs) like tons and tons and tons of features and but why can they do that because they have such a large customer base there is a large enough niche within that customer base that wants that feature and then they're and then they're achieving lock-in so that they're getting all these sort of positive ways of building like they're ba- as I put in the article, kind of building like a triple moat in some respects. They have kind of yeah. like a network based moat. They have the physical infrastructure moat, and they have the software moat. 
And you like look at this incredibly attractive market that they've managed to build and you decide you want to replicate it uh, or you want a piece of it. You need to, to some extent, either find some edge on them that they don't have. Like you need to be able to deliver something on your version of that that they can't. Or you need to go through the exact same process, all the growth to be able to build all the features. And from the outside perspective, it just seems nuts. Like if you were thinking about a new market to go into, the amount of capital you would need to deploy to be able to match that would be crazy. And even if you attempted to do it, in the meantime, they continue to grow. And by the time you caught up, they're already who knows how far in front. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the two that are really seeking to challenge them are Microsoft and Google. And, you know, Microsoft has spent the money and, and they, you know, in part, it's just a matter of life or death for Microsoft. Like they, that is the natural next market for them to go into. I mean, I've written about this from the beginning of Shatechery and it's been, you know, very satisfying as they have discussed to see them sort of shift in this direction and away from the Windows centric direction that they were. But they, they've done it. They've sent the money and they're still behind AWS in, in some important respects. But they also, the advantage, they bring to the table is the sort of they're moving to the cloud with their huge customer base and they're like going along together and, and so they're really focused on sort of hybrid model where you can you have some stuff in, in your traditional data centers you have some stuff in the cloud and and kind of moving people t- together with them and, and that's that is an advantage that they're leveraging google is coming along and in classic google fashion is trying to do this beautiful engineer solution and you talk to an engineer and they love working with the Google stuff way better than the idea of stuff. It's, oh, it's so much more elegant, much more thoughtfully designed, makes more sense, et cetera, et cetera. But meanwhile, Google is dinking around making it beautiful and Amazon has just released like 50 new features that, that and Google's mm. released like five. And, and, and in the long run, I think, you know what, I think we podcast about it. I for sure wrote about it a couple years ago that, you know, Google wants to leverage their their machine learning capabilities mm. such that they can offer that as a service. And Google, you know, I think expectations are reasonable that they will be the best at that. But uh, again, like you have to first, before you can kind of push ahead, you have to first catch up. And and AWS is, is still increasing its lead. This isn't the only place where Amazon, uh, I mean, the only part of their business where Amazon is taking this approach either. They're doing something similar in e-commerce as well, right? Yeah, I mean, because they started out, they were much more of a traditional retailer. Like they bought stuff and then from wholesalers and they sold it to you, right? But over the last decade, they've shifted dramatically where a a significant portion of their sales, I, I can't remember if it's by, I think it's by volume or if it's by dollar. I can't remember, but more than half is by, is from Amazon Marketplace, where Amazon Marketplace is where any third party can walk up to Amazon, basically put their stuff on Amazon for sale. They send it to an Amazon warehouse and yeah. they pay a holding fee, and then they pay a percentage of the sale when it goes when, when it goes out. And it's it's the front end. You go to Amazon.com and you order. And it will say on Amazon sold by X X Y Z, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. But Amazon fulfills the order. It feels like you're ordering from Amazon. It's the whole thing. But if you, it's actually very similar in concept to AWS, where Amazon is providing uh, several layers of the stack. They're providing the customer facing layer and the software and the store. And, and all the network effects that go with it. So they get, they're getting that horizontal network mm-hmm. effect. They're providing all the software of running an e-commerce business and, and handling the order. So they're getting the software sort of effects where they build the software once, they use it again and again. And they also have the physical aspect where they, they've built tons and tons and tons of fulfillment centers and distribution mm-hmm. centers and all this sorts of thing where, again, they have a triple moat around their e-commerce business. And, and yes, they're bringing other folks in, but they're coming in on Amazon's terms. Yeah. Amazon has built this vertically integrated 
model where, again, software, network effects, and hardware, where by hardware, I mean like physical assets. And then people can come in on top and leverage it, but they leverage it in the act of leveraging Amazon's infrastructure. They're actually deepening Amazon's network-based moat in particular. Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredibly impressive how they've done this time and time again. They've used themselves as the first best customer. And then uh, just on the basis of their scale, they start spinning up and then uh, all, all the aspects that you just described then use that to accelerate it. And it goes from a integrated player to an integrated network where other where other folks come and sit on top of Amazon and help them deepen their advantage. Right. And so this is, I think this is what I really sought to sort of flesh out in this article. I'm not sure I did the best job. I, I did have to do a follow-up in the daily update because people got questions. Is is this aspect of vertical integration within the Amazon sort of components? And and Amazon is they're not just doing one layer. Like in every core part of their business, they're doing multiple layers. Mm. And one of those layers is consistently a very high capital cost physical aspect. Mm. Like and, and and that is helpful. Like that's why telecoms and cable companies can be so profitable even though they're not really differentiated at all because because why are they profitable because they've spent all the money up front and that kind of just that's such a massive moat like actually building real stuff from the real world is a pretty good way to build a moat but but it's also kind of the easiest to duplicate like you could just build the same thing the reason you don't is because it's expensive well that's where amazon comes in and layers on the software layer mm-hmm. which differentiates it so they're they're getting multiple types of differentiation and again this sort of triple moat aspect where they're not doing just any one of them and this makes them very very unique because most tech companies and you kind of hinted at this before they don't want to spend that sort of money in the real world well, you think about why too, and it doesn't surprise me actually that lots of people were surprised at your conclusion and pushed back on you because this isn't the typical play from a Silicon Valley company. And you think about why it's because of how they're traditionally funded. VCs at least will want to put in money and see big multiple returns. And they like the amount of money that you need to put in to go from building software to building software plus building physical infrastructure. There is an order of magnitude, perhaps even two orders of magnitude difference. And that's why so often you see uh, companies, B2B SaaS companies, like not do that. But if there's instances where you think you can take the software and you have the capital to build it out, you can build an incredible business. And that's what we will see with self-driving cars, for example. It's not just a case of building out uh, the the network, the software on top. It's then making the investment in the hardware because once you've gone those two steps for anyone to, to compete with you, they have to follow along and to match all the capital, knowing that you could drop the cost once you've made this big fixed cost investment and your marginal cost is approaching zero. Nobody wants to replicate that. It's 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 too risky. It's too dangerous to do so. Well, that's interesting. I think self-driving cars is an interesting way to get into Amazon Go and, and the concept. And the reason is, if you th- let's go back to a company like Google or Facebook mm. and, or, or Microsoft. And you're right. They start out with the VC model. The reason why venture capital is such a great fit for software-based entities is because if like you have to, we just talked about you have to spend a ton of money up front. And then you release it. But if it hits, the returns are effectively infinite because of mm-hmm. zero marginal costs. And so that's why the, that's how the whole VC business model of putting money into lots of possibilities and you only need one or two to hit to generate a return. It's a perfect match. Like v, mm-hmm. people love to complain about VC, but VC and software is like a marriage made in heaven. Like mm-hmm. it, it really is the perfect match of 
of sort of capital investment and the the economic model of software. That, right. That's why that's why they go together. And, and so so what happens though is companies with that VC model, they the entire premise of the company is that their gross margins are 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 insane. Because they're, they have zero marginal costs. And what happens, though, is if you are successful and you IPO and you're now in the public markets, it is incredibly difficult to, to switch away from a very high gross margin model to a much lower gross margin model, which is inherent if you're introducing a huge amount of sort of physical assets and phys- physical infrastructure. So it's and- actually worth pausing and explaining why that's so difficult. You take in a certain amount of capital and investors on the basis of that capital are expecting a certain return on that capital and the margins that you get from software are really really good and so you get really high returns and the problem is once you start going down into the messiness of the physical world the margins drop dramatically and it's really expensive to get in so you have to take more capital but the returns on all that capital that you're now taking are less and so what ends up happening is investors aren't keen to do that because like it starts impacting the return on invested capital. Now, the reasons why you you would, it's it's like a ratio versus absolute game. The ratios in the, the multiples inside of these high gross margin businesses are better, but the absolute amount of money that you can ultimately make if you then extend down into the physical world is greater, but making that transition is really tricky. Yeah, because investors are signing up for a certain type of business, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that people don't invest in low margin, high cost opportunities, but they expect a different sort of return and a different risk profile. And, and so you're, you know, investors in general, whether it be Wall Street or VCs aren't going to, are going to be very displeased. And, and and displeased in a like you, the multiple of a software company and the market is just it's going to be markedly different than a physical infrastructure company mm-hmm. by as a general rule and so it's inevitable that if you are, want to switch from one to the other your multiple is going to change which if you follow through means your stock price is going to be way lower and there just aren't many companies that can tolerate a dramatic reduction in their stock price overnight or not overnight but as this sort of transition occurs and so there's a heavy heavy incentive to stay in the sort of business that you're already in. Just as an example, Google has had to reassure its investors on earnings call after earnings call because what's happening with Google is as their business is shifting to mobile, they their cost of goods sold is going up. Why? Because they pay companies like Apple uh, like a, a fee for every search that's done through Safari, right? Mm. And, and so the, their their acquisition costs are increasing steadily. And so every earnings call, you go back and look for it, it's on every single one where the CFO will 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 say we are as 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 we told you, we are getting lower margins, but we believe it's worth it because in the long run, the apps we're, we're managing the business on an absolute basis, which is kind of BS. No, no one actually manages the business on, on an absolute basis to the extreme. But in this case, it's exactly right. It's what Google should be doing. Of course, Google should be growing their mobile business, right? That, that's the future. Mm. But with that comes a reduction in margin that they have to go out of their way to continually reassure investors is normal and is the right thing to do. And again, that's a business that's going from one crazy extreme to just slightly crazy extreme, right? To do a much larger shift. If, if even Google has to reassure their investors about a tiny infinitesimal shift mm-hmm. that retains insane margins, like imagine having to go from one extreme all the way to the other. This is why software companies don't become hardware companies by and large. By and large, but it also speaks to the extent to which, I mean, everybody talks about the extent to which Bezos has managed to bend the physics 
of of uh, the investment markets, and no more so is that true than here. Like he has managed to make people believe, and like yes, they've accepted uh, zero amounts of profit for so long, but they're on the basis of what's going to happen. But it's not just that he's managed to transition it from a much more software company into like like making these massive physical investments like this, and people have just come along for the ride. That's exactly right. I mean, there were some advantages just by virtue of being e-commerce, like you're kind of dealing with the physical goods mm. as, it, as it was, but but or as it is. But Amazon did have better margin profile originally because they started out. That's why Basil started with books. It's not that he was like, you know, passionate about books. The entire if you go back and read Brad Stone's excellent book about the, the everything store about Amazon, it, it gets into this about why books. And I, I've written about I've quoted it previously. I'll, I'll, I'll try to put the link in the show notes. But the idea was they were super high margin products that gave Amazon sort of room to maneuver. Obviously, there is the whole point of that, you know, there's way more books than any one bookstore can have. But a big mm-hmm. part of it was that margin aspect was that they had room to play with it where they could sort of build their model. And now there's at some point in like the 2000s where they had to shift into like household goods and away from books, which are being digitized, because Amazon made all their money when they IPO'd is, is like books and CDs and movies. And if they were still only selling books and CDs and movies, they'd be in big trouble. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I, and, and but moving to these other goods are much lower margin. But that's in the process of doing that. That's part of the strategy went to owning this entire this entire network of, of fulfillment centers, of all these sorts of things, is building this huge, massive moat and building all the infrastructure and investing all those fixed costs so that Amazon could sell all this other stuff at minimal margins or even better, have other people sell it, mm-hmm. have them eat the low margins and pay Amazon just a fee to basically deliver it for them. Yeah, I mean, you're already giving me, you're already feeding me ideas around where they're going to take with uh, take go. But like, I feel like this is a pretty good transition point to start talking about what they just announced. Yeah, so I think though the the, the, the you, we've kind of hinted at it. I don't know if we actually said it in the podcast the mm. prediction that I made about Amazon Go that a lot of people kind of were surprised at is I predict that Amazon Go are going to be Amazon Go stores. They're going like in a few years there's going to be Amazon Go stores over the country, late, like branded Amazon Go. And what they're not going to do is they're not going to license the software behind Amazon Go to like Seven Eleven or, or 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 your local gas station or whatever whatever it might be. And a lot of folks are like wait, I thought that's what Amazon does. They build sort of like I've used the word. Print as before, which is Amazon's own language, and 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 they sell to other people, right? Why won't this be the same? And the reason it's not the same is that the the level of integration in just selling software that's not what Amazon does. Mm. Amazon doesn't just take software and license it out. They build a vertically integrated entity with a carefully defined entry point for third parties to sit on top. But they don't sell pieces of that entity. Like they they don't sell pieces of AWS. They offer they they build yeah. the whole vertically integrated thing. They don't sell pieces of the e commerce bit. They they build a whole. Ver- vertically integrated model. And to double down on that, it's like there's no way that they're going to sell the software that runs AWS. They're not going to license that to Google and license that to Microsoft. And they're not going to license the software that runs the Amazon retail business to Walmart or someone like they like they build all these pieces in the stack so they can take advantage. And yes, they welcome people in, but it's not like, a, oh, we've built the software as a traditional B2B SaaS company might do. Therefore, we need to sell it to as many places as possible. They buy these pieces and they use it to build like uh, a competitive advantage in all like up and down the value chain to to be able to sell a specific thing. 
Right, because you. I mean, what's interesting though is you could totally see the case for licensing this technology. Right, mm. you go out and you like we develop this thing. You license it to every convenience store and grocery store in the country. And and this is not just just as an aside. This is yes, I know there's been self checkout in grocery stores for ages. This is a, this is not the same thing. Like th- that, the whole point of self checkout. It, it, yes, it saves the sort of marginal costs of like cashiers, but it actually offloads the the convenience to the customer. Like you have to actually like, check yourself out, right? It, it actually makes it less convenient in some respects. Sometimes faster, but but you have to do more work. This you literally walk in, you grab something, you walk out. Like the and Amazon knows better than anyone the benefit that comes from increased convenience yeah. and reduced friction. Like it, even infinitesimal changes make a massive difference in in the bottom line. Yeah, totally. We almost started like part of part of this conversation around self-driving cars. And so I guess a a question for you is like there are all these advantages to I mean there 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 is an argument on both sides to for example if you've developed the software for self-driving cars to uh would you license it or would you then go and integrate out and build your own fleet like and so Waymo for example and Google and that's that's a company we've talked about a fair bit do you think that they're going to go down in to the extent of building their own fleet or do you think they'll license the software out Oh, right. I knew, knew we mentioned that earlier. Yeah, I wanted to get back to you on that because I, I think it will be different. And the reason it will be different is you kind of talked about you, – you kind of hinted that, oh, yeah, Google could do the same thing with Waymo. But I actually don't think they will. Like I, I think the long in the long run, Waymo's technology – and Waymo, for those who forgot, is, is the name of Google's self-driving car division. It now has its mm. own name called, called Waymo. I believe the long-run future for Waymo is licensing out its, its technology – to all kinds of car makers and and Lyft and maybe someday Uber, who knows? Like, but like mm. that, that I, I think their future is licensing. And again, like licensing is a phenomenal business model because like you that is like the purest representation of the economic power of software. Mm-hmm. You are building something once and then you're basically giving it out to other people and it's costing you nothing. And they're paying you money. And the money they're paying you is basically pure profit for, for all intents and purposes. Yep. And like that's that's the Microsoft model. Like they built Windows and they didn't and yes, they sold some to consumers, but by and large, they licensed it to to OEM makers and they built the computers and did, took on all the risk and, and and spent all the money. And then Microsoft would just skim off, you know, 70, 100 bucks every single every single computer, and it was fabulously profitable. And and I think that's the way I think that's the way Google will go. And again, we're here kind of talking about admiringly Amazon's model, but the thing to remember about the model, and this is gets into Bezos and Wall Street and all sort of stuff, it's not the most economically efficient model in the short run. Like for all the reasons we just talked about, the best way to maximize the return from software development is licensing it, yeah. it, it, or renting it out as a software as a service, whatever it might be, because then you're spending, you're getting the maximum amount of revenue relative to the amount that you're spending. And, and so from a purely investment basis, those are better companies than something like Amazon where you're, you're, cause you're lowering your, 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 you're reducing the attractiveness of your margin in the case of Amazon by building this stuff out. But the trade-off they're making is they're building a deeper and better moat. Yeah, and and I, I mean, in absolute terms, it's it's ultimately it's ultimately I think a bigger business. It's just that the the ratios aren't as big. It's interesting because I actually experienced a version of this 
working and advising a friend and his company had built this very cool algorithm for credit scoring prediction which is a large part of of making loans like you you originate a loan you need to develop a credit score or the risk associated with the loan and then, and then you need to to do all the collections and like credit scoring is a huge part of it and he was taking this technology it was like a, a behavioral model and applying it in the third world to make credit scores where none exists right now because they don't have all the infrastructure that exists in the developed world to do this. And they they were at the time licensing it into banks and banks would use it in a sustaining way to improve the quality of the credit scoring and they would pay a certain amount of money to use this new technology that was better than the existing process that they have and in some cases they like the the process that they had for credit scoring couldn't make a determination at all because these people had no credit history at all. And what I said to him was actually the best thing to be able to do with this technology would be to start a disruptive bank on the basis of this technology. Like you have insight into risk that other institutions don't have. Don't license it to them. Actually build out a, a, an institution around this new set of assumptions. You might not need branches because like the behavioral testing was done in the equivalent of centers where people would go in and take scores. So you might not need a whole series of lenders and so on that is traditionally associated with a bank, which would further improve your margins. The problem, of course, is to the capital required to go out and build a bank is huge. And therefore, it, it, like, it was unlikely that they were going to be able to raise the money to undertake such a venture. So they stuck with the licensing approach. And that's kind of the tension. It, it, even in the instance of big companies, we talked about why they won't shift models because it's changing what investors are uh, what investors expect in terms of their returns, but I, I am I am a big believer in. I love this line that you that you had in in the, the weekly article this week. The best way to build a moat, though, is to actually put in the effort to dig it, i.e., spend the money. If you have the choice, if you have the capital to do it, invariably, if you've created some technology that changes the game, it's better to take that and build a business around it rather than just license it to everybody. Well, it depends on your desired outcome too, right? I mean, yeah, true. that's the best way to build a long-standing business. It's also riskier because mm-hmm. you're 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 expending that much more money that you have to earn a return on. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, how Amazon's been developing Amazon Go for five years? Like, how many hundreds of millions or billions of dollars have they spent to develop this? And they're certainly yep. not going to earn it back, uh, you know, on one store. The best mm-hmm. way to earn it back and earn it back quickly and get a big return would be to license it to if they're going to actually build out a bunch of their own stores. Like, that's only deepening the, the the sort of hole that they're in for this technology. But if it works mm-hmm. and they become you know, these sort of like all over the place. And, and again, I think that Amazon was a little like Amazon really you, this first store has a big window and all the workers in there preparing the sandwiches and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and I think they're really trying to land the message. Oh, there's still plenty of workers here. We're not, we're not like making people unemployed. The reality is that all that stuff can be done centralized, right? All the sandwich mm-hmm. making and salad making and all that sort of stuff. Like these are going to be much more like vending machines in some respect where most of the time you don't need anyone there at all. I mean, maybe like ID checking for alcohol, but, but like that, which was, which was at this store. But, but I mean, and then you get this sort of old school, old world, like returns to scale that we talked about the very beginning like in mm. those those returns to scale are still a real thing like just because they don't compare on those sort of ratio basis to software type returns of scale doesn't mean they're not like 
good ways well, to make money and to make a defensible business. Oh, totally. But if you have if you have some kind of scalable advantage inside of your business, like a disruptive technology at the heart of your business, and you can use this in the way that Amazon has traditionally used that, it's not just that you end up being able to, what's the Bezos quote about if you have the biggest lungs, then lower the oxygen in the room until you're the only one left breathing. Like you could see them using this in traditional retail and lowering the price beyond what other retailers are able to lower the price such that they become the dominant retailer and they own not just all of e-commerce, but this is enough of a scalable advantage such that they can own all of traditional retail too, because other retailers can't match their cost basis. Yep. And the margin on convenience stores is like 2% or something like that. So, I mean, like there's, they don't have to go far to, to have a sustainable sort of advantage. And they also bring to bear the brand. And this kind of gets into, I think the the tension here. And I, I, I wrote this daily update, like my conclusion, I think a a lot of people who were not familiar with Shechekri took it as like, Oh, look at this guy cheering on, like the, 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 the lost all these jobs. And it wasn't a, cheery conclusion when i talked about people loving amazon i was calling back to the aggregation theory and the challenge mm-hmm. of, of aggregation with these big companies like amazon is the most beloved company in america and like and, and they're increasing their lead like more than apple more than one else like they're they are like people love amazon and you know it's one of those things where that's going to make it this whole thing is so challenging like, this is like i don't know that people fully appreciate the extent to which amazon is reaching for absolute and total dominance here mm. i mean we're like there's three ways i kind of articulated three ways to have a monopoly like you can have this sort of horizontal network based monopoly you can have a vertical monopoly <laughs> which is entailed in foreclosing you, you know other people from like stuff that you have like for example mm-hmm. this i use the kiva robots example they bought kiva robots and then they stopped selling it to anyone else and that was financially <laughs> in the short term a dumb decision because mm-hmm. kiva robots had substantial revenue from selling to third parties and and, and we talked about this in the context of like uh, we've talked about the context of acquisitions previously like if you buy something and you make it exclusive you're it's value destructive like because you're paying for sales that you are going to stop making going forward right so when amazon bought kiva systems for eight times revenue that was actually not a good representation of how much they spent they were actually buying it for like infinite times revenue because they were going to destroy all that revenue <laughs> but in the long run they by cutting it off from everyone else they gave themselves another sort of advantage a technological advantage and so they they endured short term short to medium term financial pain for a long term payoff so they could get a vertical sort of you know a vertical advantage and then you add on this sort of natural monopoly advantage of investing a ton in physical infrastructure that produces its own barrier to entry and it's like a monopoly done three ways this is scary like I, when i that mm. wasn't a cheery conclusion it's like this is scary when i said regulation may be may be elusive it's not because it shouldn't be regulated or it shouldn't be a concern it's it's because in the process, people really like it. They they love they love it. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting when this all plays out, right? Like part of on uh, part of the basis for the reason people love it is because it's so convenient and it's so the experience is so good. But part of the reason they love it is because 
Amazon has consistently, or at least they have the perception of it as well, uh, they've benefited from this. They've consistently followed that mantra of like, if you have the biggest lungs, then lower the oxygen. What starts to get interesting is towards the end game, uh, when they are the ones left standing and others look at potentially entering the market and it looks so unattractive for all the reasons that we've talked about previously. Do they continue to keep prices that low or do the prices start creeping up, which is which has always been the case of traditional monopolies when they get to this stage, they start, well, we have complete price control, so we're going to charge more. And if they fall into that trap, then maybe that love starts to disappear. But if they, I mean, what's also crazy is if they keep reducing, if they keep prices low and people love it, well, maybe this is actually an instance of a monopoly where people are like, okay, you know, we can live with this. First off, they, their prices are not consistently the lowest That's thing true. anymore. And it hasn't been for a long time. Yeah. But two, uh, the, uh, the way I phrased it on another podcast, uh, something last year is uh, like Amazon's goal is to take a slice of all economic activity. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's, that is very much what is going on here. Like they, they're dom, they're dominant in e-commerce, absolutely dominant. Like, so all the growth in e-commerce is going to Amazon. This is, I think, the most well-founded and, and most obvious play into physical commerce. Like you can see how this scales in a way that like the Amazon bookstores and all those sorts of stuff. Like you, it wasn't quite clear, like where they're going with that. Where, whereas I think that got them again, classic Amazon got them a lot of learnings and understanding of how mm-hmm. to build out physical spaces. And now they can apply that to a concept like this. And again, you're building out these, all these, these are also distribution channels for the online business. They're also mm-hmm. pickup points. They're also all kinds of interesting things that, that Amazon can build out. And I don't think they will have a, you know, the reason they would raise prices is because they've, they've run out of other ways to sort of increase the revenue. <laughs> but, but this opportunity is so unbelievably massive that that, where that becomes like a financial imperative is so far down the road that I actually don't think that that's a danger. The danger, and we've already seen this manifested, is the power they exert on, on suppliers. So, I mean, we saw this in the case of, of books, right? They have been ruthless in squeezing book publishers. Mm. Why? Because they can. And, and, and this is where – but what's so sort of devious about it is by being customer-centric, Amazon is like, we're just, we just want lower prices for books. Who's against lower prices for books? And that fits in with the U.S. doctrine, of mm-hmm. antitrust doctrine about looking at consumer welfare and consumer prices. And honestly, no, and no one cares about like, what's happening behind the scenes. It's scary. I mean, this is, this is one of those instances where the European approach of looking at making sure there is competition in supply – is actually they are better positioned to deal with these aggregators. Uh, well, I mean, is, is it an aggregator? I think that's probably a misapplication. Oh, ab- no, no, Amazon's absolutely an aggregator. Okay. Well, I mean, so they're not an aggregator. Yeah, so they they have all the characters of an aggregator. It, what makes them different is the the, the physical, physical aspect, right? W- yeah. Which I I purposely excluded because, but but they have all the characteristics in that they're marshalling consumer demand. And they're mm, leveraging yes. that demand on, on on their supply. Again, the the difference with Amazon and the other companies is, for example, Amazon is not worldwide. Like their their build out geographically has been much more limited and constrained. And yes, it's getting more and more, but relative to like a Google or Facebook, which is instantly worldwide. And so that's why I drew the physical distinction between like classic mm. aggregators and something like Amazon. But it, in it's same with Apple. Why, why I said Apple is more on the Amazon side. But but the same concept, the general idea of owning demand absolutely still applies. 
Yeah, that international aspect is also an interesting side effect of what we just described of like if you're integrating and you want to build it out yourself versus if you license. If you license the ability to get to lots of people, not just in one market, but all around the world is obviously dramatically increased. The ability to make a big return very quickly is increased if you are on on the licensing route. Whereas if you are going to go to the extent of building everything out on top of it to maximize the advantage, you still have to go old world geography by geography by geography and that's why i mean it's it's funny going back to australia and amazon's just now starting to creep into the market and i i i guess it must be funny to some listeners in foreign countries where they are so familiar with with google and facebook almost certainly probably apple but amazon is this thing that uh, i mean i hear about it and maybe i use aws if i'm a developer but by and large it doesn't affect my life and that's because they they take this very different approach to the other organizations right can you imagine facebook or google being around for decades and not yet in australia right i mean yeah, like, crazy. like in, any software company australia is one of the first markets because it's you don't even have to translate the language right uh-huh. and so they're going to be there immediately and, and and this really gets to this physical aspect of Amazon's business. And, and it gets at the costs of it. it. It takes longer to build out and it's more difficult. And you have to deal with regulations. You have to deal with buying land and all these sorts of really hairy things. But the payoff of dealing with really difficult, hairy things is that once you've done it, you've done it. Mm. And whoever comes along has to also deal with all the difficult, hairy things. So they're not. So usually, if you want to challenge Google, it's hard enough. You have to build you know, comparable software and you have to get users and it's a devilishly difficult problem and it's no one has been successful doing it and it doesn't look like anyone will be in, in the near future. But you take that and you also add on, oh, and by the way, you have to spend billions of dollars mm-hmm. building fulfillment centers and distribution and building up a logistics chain, all this sort of stuff. It just increases the, again, it, it's like a triple moat, it, but that last moat is like, it's like a moat too far. Mm-hmm. Totally. I think the the other th- aspect of this that is that is you know really we're thinking about and we've talked about around it a lot, but this is quite literally the advantage here is I mean there's two advantages. I think the most important advantage is the convenience, and again, you cannot overestimate how powerful convenience is. Like convenience is the most important like differentiator when it comes to anything consumer facing, like people just do stuff. If it's easier, like they'll take the path of least resistance. And you see that in market after market and item after item. It's funny how uh, people are so subject to this, but recognize it so little. Like if if I can buy a good from a manufacturer's website, or if I can just buy it on Amazon where all my details are already in there, even if I have to pay a small premium, I'm probably just like, I do not want to have to type in my credit card and my name and all those details into another site. I can just get it with three clicks and it's Amazon. And I don't even bother to check if I can get it. Exactly. That's the thing about the pricing, right? It doesn't really matter if Amazon's a little bit more because who who bothers to check anywhere but Amazon anyway? Right. I mean, <laughs> exactly. It's it's just it just blows my mind how frequently people underestimate the importance of that and comparing it to the self checkout. I can see why, but that's just like saying, well, all sites are created equal. Like you can just buy it somewhere else. It's like actually no. Once people have established like this is that much easier, they just they're not even going to think about it. And walking in, grabbing something, and then walking out—that is the ultimate in easy, right? Oh, ab- absolutely. And, and then you, but then but there is still the cost 
saving, which is which is I think two parts. One is the cashier, which is most obvious, mm-hmm. but the second one is I think you, you, there's a lot of centralization that can happen uh, in the long run. That'll take longer to longer to build out. But again, it's a very this is a very concrete example of software replacing people, and, and these are jobs that exist. And are they glamorous jobs? No. Are they jobs that are meaningful and important to a lot of people? Absolutely. And you know, there's an like this is going to be we've. I just don't know what else to say. This is going to be a thing. This is going to be something we're going to have to deal and grapple with. And I guess, you know, Amazon, yes, they're, they are harsh and devi- and the way they deal with suppliers is is problematic. And I think if you want to look at why, when and if there is any sort of like action against Amazon, it's on that sort of supplier side. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, what's great about Amazon is the whole concept. Like Amazon has enabled tons and tons of new businesses. One, the AWS is the obvious one. This Mm -hmm. idea that you can start any sort of business with basically zero capital costs and get it off the ground is incredible. But also Amazon itself, the the store, like there are so, there are more and more of businesses that are home businesses or they, they sell their own little thing or you make one little widget and you can list it on the largest marketplace in the world with the largest audience where people go, not the largest, Alibaba in China would be the same. But it's the same idea where you don't have to build out a storefront. You don't have to build out. You don't have to build out delivery. You don't have to deal with the post office. Like you can, it's a one stop shop where you can build your business, and that like that's a good thing as well. It's it's a really good thing. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. And you, this was the point you made at the end of the article. Like when people love it like that, and regulation, particularly around antitrust, is fundamentally. A political action it's going to be really interesting like yeah nobody loved at&t nobody loves standard oil like these weren't beloved organizations it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out in the instance of a, a, a monopolist a, a potentially beloved monopolist it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out yeah that's sort of aggregation and monopoly in antitrust in general that's 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 mm. that's what's so interesting about it is because it's not about controlling distribution it's about controlling demand and you control demand by having a product that people like and people want to use. You know, but this point about Amazon being an enabler as well as as this potential power, I think, you know, what does the future look like? Like what when 20 years from now, 25 years from now, what does our economy look like? And there it's important to remember like yes, it's it is appropriate and right to be to be aware of and concerned about the power that Amazon is accruing. And frankly, they're I think they're far enough down the road that I'm not sure that anything is gonna really really stop mm-hmm. them. But at the same time, it's also worth keeping in mind and acknowledging what Amazon is going to enable, the sort of jobs and possibilities that happen when you can just walk up and 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 sell sell whatever you want to sell. And are they are they like Amazon type businesses? No, they're marginal cost businesses, right? Maybe I want to make like you talk about your sister, maybe I want to make jewelry and I want to sell jewelry. Like that mm-hmm. has significant marginal costs. You have to actually buy the material for the jewelry and you have to actually spend the, the time to build it and then you sell it at a profit. In the, is that a VC type business? Of course not. Not not, no. not in the slightest. But that doesn't mean it's not one, a perfectly valid business. Two, it, it doesn't mean that that sort of business can't create a very meaningful life for the proprietor. And three, a lot of the things in life that make us happy are stuff that we buy that is that are marginal cost incurred goods. Like people buy from your sister because the the piece of jewelry makes them happy, and and that like Amazon is in a very real way, and a lot of these other platform companies are in a very real way enabling those types of businesses. 
Yeah, so it, it, I obviously completely agree. It was it was interesting. We talk about this kind of thing at a high level about like how there's going to be an explosion of these kind of niche businesses and uh, someone actually tweeted at us uh, not too long ago about with a with a big concrete example that I really liked and talking about the craft beer explosion that's ha- happened inside the United States and like that's a good example like the number of people that have been employed in the beer industry has actually dramatically increased over the last ten years as a result of people being able to to their taste being catered to more and there there is also some interesting regulation in the United States that's enabled this to come up and I think that's also another other thing to keep in mind, like how we can make sure that we keep encouraging this kind of thing to pick up because it's going to be less of this old world mass scale and it's going to be more of these like niche businesses that are the the opportunities of the future. Right, because the big the big guys inevitably go towards the lowest common denominator. Like that's mm-hmm. the because they want to achieve all those scale aspects, right? If you're if you're the one of the big beer companies, what are the big? I can't even say Budweiser. What's the what's the huge one now that they're owned? Anheuser Busch. Is it Anheuser Busch? And then there's, uh, there's basically two beer companies in the world for all intents and purposes, and they have to serve so many people. And the entire point of being so big is to achieve scale. But by achieving scale, you lose something along the way, which opens up. You know, sort of the undergrowth. I mean, this is our, our our podcast way back in the day. You have the jungle where you have these these towering mm-hmm. trees, but you have this massive undergrowth with all these interesting things going on. And again, are these creating like b- millionaires and billionaires? No, but I mean, the old world didn't create millionaires and billionaires either. But what it did is created these big companies and everyone went to work for the corporation. But these platforms are enabling this new sort of model where instead of having the big corporation that employs 500,000 people or whatever it might be, you have these platforms that are far massively larger than even the largest corporation previously. And then sitting on top of these platforms are all these this undergrowth of of little proprietors and maybe maybe one person shop, maybe ten person shops, whatever it might be, that's uniquely enabled by the internet. And and this is the point about talking about this regulate regulation stuff. It's going to be so easy to squeeze that stuff out. And here's an example this week where YouTube, as part of like cracking down on the 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 problematic content, has dramatically increased the bar for becoming like a a certified producer of video. And is that going to is that going to stop like bad actors from monetizing? Yes. And it's also going to make it harder for mm. for people acting appropriately to monetize as well. Like there's again, I'm not saying they did the right or wrong thing. We'll have to see how it plays out, but there is always going to be a cost to regulating and policing this stuff. And, and I I don't want that cost of the little guy and the things that might happen to be mm. lost in this conversation. Well, it's so it's so easy for it to happen because more often than not they're so small that you don't even realize they're squashed or you're preventing something from happening that don't nobody knows was even going to happen. The one thing I'd say about Amazon that's going to be interesting from an aggregation and monopoly perspective versus some of the other players is that because it's extending down into the physical realm, it is going to look the most like the monopolies of the past. And it's going to be interesting to see whether the regulations, because they're more likely to apply because of the strategy that Amazon's applying versus, for example, Facebook, which it's it can be challenging to figure out how Facebook's running a foul of antitrust law. If Amazon because they're not going, right, there's yeah, no there's right, no real exactly. like there's no real way in which they are. No, that's a great point because the, the whole defense, the whole point of a, a software sort of monopoly is well, you can always click away, you can always go. Mm-hmm. And that's always been their defense, and yes, yeah, so you can 
talk about network effects and how it's actually impossible in such a way. But from a very narrow technical sense, that's correct. I could go to Bing.com right now. I'm not mm-hmm. going to. And that's interesting as to why I'm not going to. And that is a real moat. But it has the the benefit of like it's it like Google is very happy to use that excuse. And they'll use it again and again. Whereas mm-hmm. you can see Amazon getting to a point where you have no choice but to use yeah. Amazon. And you're, it's a great point because by virtue of entering into the physical world. And so I think they're going to be, they're probably going to be the first ones that run afoul of this. And what will be so interesting to see is whether being loved by consumers is enough of a defense or whether it delays it longer than it otherwise would have, or maybe prevents it altogether. But I think they're going to be the first ones that start to test this as an aggregator. Yeah, it will be interesting. I I think like, for example, I think it would be Amazon should buy Spotify, for example. I think it's such a natural fit with Alexa and all those things Mm. that they're doing. And I don't think they will because they they're worried about political blowback from the Trump administration mm-hmm. in particular. Because, I mean, it's funny. I think Bezos probably bought the Washington Post as thinking it'd be good at, to have, like, sort of political cover by having, you know, the the, the newspaper mm-hmm. capital and all sorts of things. It, I think if he could do it all over again, he probably wouldn't because it actually ended up being, I think, politically problematic. Yeah. And I think it probably is constraining Amazon to an extent. But, it, you know, that's sort of just a side note that I've been, I've been yeah. thinking about. That, that that's a whole nother podcast right there. It is. It is. You know, our thanks to WordPress.com for sponsoring Exponent. Again, a great platform where you can just walk up and build up your site and you don't have mm-hmm. to have any expertise. There, there, there's, a, there's, a connection, there's a connection for you. Go to WordPress.com slash Exponent to get 15% off your, your, your plan. And a reminder that next week we are doing something different. We are going to do a mailbag. Exponent uh, email mailbag at exponent.fm. And again, no promises that we're, I highly doubt we're going to get to every question. I suspect we'll get a lot of questions. We're going to do our best. It's an experiment, but by all means, send them along and, and we will, we will probably, if we get a bunch about a few different topics, maybe we'll kind of bundle them into them, mm-hmm. but we have no idea what to expect. So we will yeah. see how it goes. And here's hoping it's not just three emails too. <laughs> well, <laughs> we can start emailing each other. And like, yeah, yeah, that's right. I have, I've always had a question for you, Ben. <laughs> so this, 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 this question is from Ames Jalworth. <laughs> yeah, and don't mind the accent. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. I will. So I will talk to you actually in a few days. So we will record this a little early. So if anything crazy happens next week, we might not cover it. But that's how it goes. Wish me luck. Good luck with the move. Thank you very much. I will talk to you next week. Sounds good, mate. See ya. Yeah, bye-bye.